Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. God is with us. His Spirit is here. I invite you to stand to say the words of our our call to worship, which you'll find in your sheet here. So if you'd like to stand just now, and we'll remain standing following this as we move into the hymn, which is hymn number 22. But I want to invite you to say the words in bold after I've said the initial uh, call to worship that is found there. And then we'll go on and sing hymn number 22 in your Baptist praise and worship books. So first of all, our call to worship, O Lord, let our souls rise up to meet you. As the day rises to meet the sun, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. The first reading is from Matthew chapter 26. Verses 14 to 30. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Then one day, then one of the twelve disciples, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What will you give me if I betray Jesus to you? They counted out thirty silver coins and gave them to him. From then on, Judas was looking for a good chance to hand Jesus over to them. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked him, Where do you want us to get the Passover meal ready for you? Go to a certain man in the city, he said to them, and tell him, The teacher says, My hour has come. My disciples and I will celebrate the Passover at your house. The disciples did as Jesus had told them and prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, Jesus and the twelve disciples sat down to eat. During the meal, Jesus said, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples were very upset and began to ask him one after the other, Surely, Lord, you don't mean me. Jesus answered, one who dips his bread in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man will die as the scriptures say he will. But how terrible for that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the traitor, spoke up. Surely, teacher, you don't mean me, he asked. Jesus answered, so you say. While they were eating, Jesus took a piece of bread, gave a prayer of thanks, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. Take and eat it, he said. This is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks to God, and gave it to them. Drink it, all of you, he said. This is my blood, which seals God's covenant, my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink this wine until the day I drink the new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. The Lord's Supper. 
In the following instructions, however, I do not praise you because your meeting for worship actually do more harm than good. In the first place, I've been told that there are opposing groups in your meetings, and this, I believe, is partly true. No doubt there must be divisions among you so that the ones who are in the right may be clearly seen. When you meet together as a group, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, you each go ahead with your own meal, so that some are hungry while others get drunk. Haven't you got your own homes in which you go, which to eat and drink? Or would you rather despise the church of God and put to shame the people who are in need? What do you expect me to say to you about this? Shall I praise you? Of course I don't. For I receive from the Lord the teaching that I passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, <clears throat> on the night he was betrayed, took a piece of bread, gave thanks to God, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This is the cup in God's new covenant, sealed with my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in memory of me. This means that every time you eat this bread <clears throat> and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It follows that if anyone eats the Lord's bread or drinks from his cup in a way that dishonors him, he or she is guilty of sin against the Lord's body and blood. So then you should all examine yourselves first and then eat the bread and drink from the cup. For if people do not recognize the meaning of the Lord's body when they eat the bread and drink from the cup, they bring judgment on themselves as they eat and drink. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and several here died. If you would examine yourselves first, we would not come under God's judgment. But we are judged and punished by the Lord so that we shall not be condemned together with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather together to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. Anyone who is hungry should eat at home, so that you will not come under God's judgment as you meet together. As for the other matters, I will settle them when I come. I don't know if any of you ever remember being in an exam. Mm. I've had a few over my life. And I remember one particular exam. It was oh, a number of years ago now. I think it was December 1988. I was completing my Bachelor of Divinity degree. I was studying in an International Baptist Theological Seminary in Ruslikin, outside of Zurich in Switzerland. It's a big name, that. Shortened to IBTS. And the culmination of my, my study was a two and a half hour, well, it lasted three hours because they had a break for tea in the middle, a two and a half hour oral exam. I had done the coursework, I had submitted my dissertation, and then finally you were invited into this room that you were never allowed to enter as a student, the faculty room. 
And there was a big table, and round it, the different members of the faculty sat, and for the next two and a half hours, three hours, because they stopped for tea, they would explore five different areas in turn, Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, church history, and practical theology. Each lead professor having half an hour to explore with you your knowledge or lack thereof. The New Testament professor was a man called uh, Dr. Gunther Wagner. I always remember him as an imposing figure. I don't know whether he was or whether it's like when you're a child you think a room is big and when you're a student you think a professor is imposing. But he was a very imposing character who I was slightly fearful of. And he was going to be leading in my new, the New Testament part of the exam. What they would ask you to do was they would ask you to translate a, a portion of the New Testament from Greek. And then they would ask you questions about it. Well, the New Testament's quite a big book, I think. And therefore, you could go and kind of try and get them to narrow down a little the area or the part of the New Testament that they were going to focus on, this was considered okay and acceptable practice. So I went to see him. I didn't really know how to phrase the question, which really was, can you tell me what bit of the New Testament you're going to ask me questions from? And I went and I kind of said, do you think you could give me some insight as to the kind of part of the New Testament we may be exploring in the exam? And he said to me, First Corinthians. I was disappointed. I wanted something shorter. <laughs> Jude, I thought, would have been a good option for me to learn and practice my Greek. My Greek was never that strong. And I remember when he said 1 Corinthians, I thought to myself, I'm going to have to learn 15 chapters off by heart instead of one. And so it was, I sat in the exam and he handed me the Greek New Testament and he asked me to translate. And it, as it was, a Quite clever, quite sneaky. Suspecting that people maybe learn bits of it off by heart, he broke up the bits that you had to translate. So it was, if you would read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 to 16, and 1 Corinthians 11, verses whatever, and you would like to translate it. And, and I got through that part of it okay. And then I remember him saying to me, as he then began to ask questions, he said, can you tell me, can you tell me what you think that the word soma means in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 29? I'll read the verse to you. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. And he said to me, what do you think the word soma means in that verse? Well, my Greek wasn't great, but I wasn't stupid, and I had studied it for four years, so I did know that soma was body. But I also expected that since this was a final BD exam, they were looking for more than this, and that somehow he wanted me to explain what did I think Paul meant by the word body when in 1 Corinthians 11, and in that particular verse, he says, people who somehow don't recognize or, or don't discern the body, or as some translations put it, the body of the Lord are eating judgment on themselves. I understood that he was saying to me, what is the thing that can go wrong at communion? What is it that people can do that betray it? What is it that allows it to become something other than what it is meant to be? 
I hadn't prepared for this question, but I had learned 1 Corinthians off by heart, so I knew the book fairly well. And so I paused for a moment to think, and I, I finally came up with the answer, and I looked at him and I said, in this context, I don't think the word is talking about the physical body of Jesus. What Paul was talking about here, I said to him, he's talking about the church, he's talking about the community. Something goes wrong in communion, I said, when those of us who participate in it don't recognize the nature of what the church is like. I offered my pitch to him. He smiled and sat back thinking what a good teacher he was. I smiled, relieved. I had pulled it off and got away with it. Thinking that that is what the word body means there was actually something quite new for me. I had never thought it up till that moment. It was a risk I took. To think of the church as body in that passage where Paul says, if you don't recognize the body, somehow you are eating communion wrongly. That, that had never been my understanding up to that point. From the time I had been converted and had begun to attend church, no one had really explained it to me, but I had been at enough communion services to pick up what I gathered people meant by that verse. And I realized as I listened to people that the way in which I had learned to understand that verse was, when Paul talks about the body there, he's meaning, if you don't believe that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then you're eating communion wrongly. That was always the way I understood it. I always understood the word body there to be a, a reference to the physical body of Jesus Christ. And that, that may be your own view, and I know that it's certainly been a view that has been held in churches. I remember great panic in a church I was in once over this particular verse. And the panic was caused by the fact that the folk who were serving communion didn't know whether they should offer it to people who they didn't know whether they believed or not because if they offered it to them and they took it and ate it and drank it without believing, were they encouraging them to eat and drink judgment on themselves? It was a real panic. In fact, the panic got even worse the day these poor people, poor literally actually people, took it. It nearly led to a deacon's meeting. What should we do? Because people who we are not sure whether they believe or not in, in the death of Jesus for us as Savior and Lord have eaten communion. Maybe they are eating and drinking judgment on themselves. However, in that day and that exam, from that point onwards, I knew I had changed my mind over this passage. For when you read the context here, indeed, Throughout 1 Corinthians, although indeed Jesus will use the word body to refer to his physical body, you and I know that the dominant use of the word in 1 Corinthians is for the church. It's for the community. The church is the body of which Christ is its head. And here Paul was concerned about when we come and we eat and we drink together and we don't recognize properly the nature. When we don't discern properly the nature of the body, which is the church. Now, of course, the two are connected. Jesus' physical body, the giving of his physical body, the shedding of his blood in sacrifice, and the nature of the church are, of course, 
connected. In 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks about his message as being the message of the cross. And the connection that he's making here is actually that since the Lord who we are remembering is a Lord who has given himself in service and sacrifice, if we come and eat communion and don't recognize that we should be treating one another in service and in sacrifice, then we are understanding things wrongly. Those of us who gather to remember one who gave himself in service and sacrifice, but who do not treat one another in service and sacrifice, somehow are confusing these two things. The church which follows the Christ who gave himself and gave his body is the church that should give itself to one another and to its members in service and sacrifice. Where that is not the case, something goes wrong in our eating of communion because we don't understand properly the kind of community that the church is meant to be, the church that claims to follow the crucified Christ. Understood in this way, Paul highlights that communion is a very communal event. It has got to do with our relationships with one another. If I can be even a wee bit provocative, for Paul, communion is a political event. By politics, I don't mean here party politics. I'm using the word in the old sense where politics means the ordering of a community's life. People say that they don't like politics in church or they don't like politics here and they wish there were no politics. Every organization has politics. The politics are the way that we order our common life. And in the ordering of our life, we will do do things and we will say things. We will develop habits and practices which show the things that are important to us. Our practices, the ways in which we act and the ways in which we treat one another, are our politics. They, They show what we think is important to us. One Mennonite writer, uh, uh, the late John Howard Yoder, has picked up this idea of politics in the church. And he talks in a little book, wonderful little book called Body Politic. He talks about practices in the life of the church, practices that have been gained from the life and the teaching of Jesus that should then be part of the church's life and a relationship with one another that show the kind of people that we are. And one of these practices is communion. When we gather in communion together and eat bread and drink wine, the politics of that is that we are saying or should be saying that at this table, everyone is welcome. Because ultimately, in Christ, everyone is equal. That is the politics of this body for the church is not like any other body. It models itself on the way of the crucified Christ. But the thing about practices, the thing about doing things, is they don't just show what we are like. They shape us into being 
a particular kind of people. After nearly 30 years, in the last six weeks, five weeks, four weeks, since January, after 30 years, I've rejoined a pipe band. Now, off and on for 30 years, I have occasionally played the bagpipes. Someone would come and say, well, would you play the pipes at my wedding? And I've, as long as I've had about six weeks' notice, I've usually been able to manipulate the things back into some semblance of operation and manage to get me able to play a few tunes, Mary's Wedding, Scotland the Brave, the Round Tree, all the popular ones that people love and enjoy at weddings. And if you play them slow and fast, people think they're different tunes, so you only need about four. <laughs> and over the years, I have, I have done this and, and played. But recently, I have now joined a band, and it's a fascinating experience. Because what, what you find about bands is, one, they, they have their own tunes that they play. It's maybe the same as choirs. You have your own songs that you sing. But not only that, you sing them in a certain way. And for me to be a member of this band, I have to practice with them. And as I practice with them, as I play the tunes, listening to the way in which they play the tune, I become shaped into being a member of that pipe band. The practice is what will make me a member of that band. For I will learn to play the tunes the way they play it. I will learn to play the tunes they play. Now, if someone asked me to play at their wedding, they'd be having a whole range of tunes. If anyone would go, oh, he's just played that wee fancy Spanish thing. He belongs to that band. Practices shape us. They don't simply express what we're like. But they shape us. People talk about practices. It's been practices of moral formation. They shape us into being a particular kind of people. This is why Paul was so concerned that they practice communion properly. Because the way that they do it will shape their ethics. It will shape their behavior. If at communion they learn to treat one another with humanity and with equality, it will shape them into that kind of people. But if at communion their practice is one of division, they will be that kind of people. Paul is concerned for the politics of this community. He's concerned that they practice their communion in a way that shows that they are a community. Indeed, he goes as far as saying, if they don't, whatever else they do, it's not the Lord's Supper that they celebrate. If I wanted to push things a bit further, I would say that communion is not just political, it's also economic. In these verses, Paul is concerned about the way in which those who had were disregarding those who did not. He was concerned about the way in which the wealthy feasted and the poor went hungry. Where that happens, in Paul's mind, people are selling out communion. I was interested when I I turned to, to Matthew's gospel and Matthew's account. It's very interesting the way Matthew tells that story. His account of Jesus' betrayal by Judas. What makes it so poignant? What makes it so painful? Is that it's all going on at a meal that's about friendship and about intimacy. But in Matthew's account, of course, the selling out has taken place with the changing of money. Paul has got the same 
unease about the way in which economics can destroy community. When a community can meet and the economic differences are simply disregarded as though they don't matter, as though that it is okay for those who have to eat and to be full and for those who have little to go without. Paul says when that happens, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I don't know what it is that you do. In fact, your meetings do more harm than good. Because what you represent is not the body of Christ which you remember, which is one who gave himself in suffering and in sacrifice. A writer by the name of Dwayne K. Friesen in a little book called Artists, Citizens and Philosophers writes this, The sharing of bread is a matter of economic ethics. At the table... Material sustenance is shared and no one is excluded on the basis of rank. When I look back at the times I've been in church situations and people have got concerned about who should be eating communion, it, it was a real concern, and people who shouldn't. When I think back to one particular incident in my mind, I realized that those who were in the greatest danger of betraying communion were not the poor family who took it, but it was the rest of us who didn't care that they were poor. That's the betrayal. Like the betrayal of the silver taken by the one who would then sit at table. As a practice, the church which gets its nature from the sacrificial serving Christ cannot eat and drink without attention and attentiveness to those who have not. Communion is about sharing bread and wine with others. It involves recognizing some of its communal, its political, its economic dimensions. When John Howard Yoder wrote that little book, Body Politics, one of his points were that the church is not the world and the world is not the church. But if the church can learn to practice its life differently, it can bear witness to the world as to the way things should be. And so communion, the sharing that takes place among people with bread and wine, the sharing of lives that that represents should in turn bear witness to the world. This is a way that it should be among you. Whatever else your views in our world, if we're going to do this, whatever else your view on economics, on how people should be helped or not, whatever else your views, the poor in our world should not go without food. That's what communion says. Should not. And that should not be based upon some gracious welfare system. It should be based upon the fact that those who hunger like you and I are human beings who live in this world and need ourselves of mercy and grace. I know it doesn't tie up with various views of economics, all of this stuff. I know that. But we are the church, you see. And the politics of the church is a politics shaped 
upon the crucified Christ who gave his body and blood for everyone. In the church, some Christian people have picked up this theme and have also accepted, therefore, that deriving from communion, their responsibility is themselves as to how we respond to the poor and the needy. Communion becomes a motivation for us as we eat and drink to reach out to others. I, about a year ago, came across this book that some of you may be familiar with. It's called Take This Bread by Sarah Miles. Fascinating story. Sarah, one day, one early winter's morning, went into a church. Now, she just didn't do church. She was brought up a confirmed, actually a confirmed atheist. She was ideologically atheist. And for some reason, she went into this church. She received communion because they offered it to everyone. And her life was at that moment transformed. This is what she writes. And then we gathered around that table, San Francisco, St. Gregory's Church. And then we gathered around that table. And there was more singing and standing. And someone was putting a piece of fresh crumbly bread in my hand, saying the body of Christ, and handing me the goblet of sweet wine, saying the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened to me. I still can't explain my first communion. It made no sense. I was in tears and physically unbalanced. I felt as if I had just stepped off a curb and been knocked over painlessly from behind. The disconnect between what I thought was happening, I was eating a piece of bread, What I heard someone saying, in some ways this is the body of Christ, that disconnect utterly short-circuited my ability to do anything but cry. And from that point, because for Sarah, communion had been the meeting of such a, a real hunger and thirst, she began to see it as a basis for her own action in San Francisco, which she then established with others throughout the city, a whole series of food pantries. Take this bread in the name of Christ. Food pantries throughout San Francisco that fed the poor and the needy because when she had gathered at the communion table as someone who later realized indeed she was poor and needy, Jesus had happened to her. I'm not arguing for any particular view of how you view the bread and the wine, except to say that when we gather, Jesus happens. And this event that we are about to participate in, in some way or another, is deeply powerful and is also deeply communal. This is our politics. We gather at table in memory of the crucified Son of God in a context where all are invited and the needs of one another should be recognized. This is church following the example 
of the crucified Christ. These are our values. As we eat and drink, we do not simply proclaim them. But may we be being shaped into the kind of people who, having received bread, will share it with others and with everyone, including especially those who know what it is to have none. Almighty God, broken bread and poured out wine in a moment or two will preach to our senses the gift and sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. It speaks of your mercy, it speaks of your challenge, it speaks of your example. And so, Lord, we pause, as it were, in the light of that to pray. Lord God, we pray for those who we know and those who to us are unknown, who this day find themselves empty in spirit, despairing in heart, low in emotion, longing somehow to experience that inner spiritual new creation transformation that comes through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray, therefore, for those who do not know you. We pray that somehow through the life and witness of our lives and the lives of others, they too may be drawn to the person of Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to trust him, to follow him, to love him, and to know what it is to be loved by him. Yet, Lord, as we gather, we also pray for those who we know, for whom they are hungering and thirsting, is not spiritual but physical for people who today will go without. For people who throughout the world, Lord God, will, will long to have something quite simply to eat and drink. We pray that in the ordering of our own lives and in the ordering of our national lives and in the ordering of international programs that we would accept upon our generation, responsibility to seek, to feed, and support the hungry in the world, beyond all of the politics for the sake of humanity and in the name of Christ to seek to see the hungry fed. Lord, we know that there are others whose, whose longing is of a different nature. We are aware of those who long for for justice and peace and some who may find themselves indeed as in Egypt perhaps caught up in some situations that it's not clear how does justice and peace come in such troubled contexts and so we do pray for wisdom we do pray Lord God for patience we do pray Lord God for restraint we pray for a way forward that will deliver both justice and peace into that situation and into other troubled situations in our world. Lord God, for others 
when we gather at communion, we will name and pray more intimately. But just at this moment, we hold up before you our world and its hungering and thirsting and all of its dimensions. And we pray, Lord, bring into that your spiritual, physical, real transformation. That the hungry may be fed. That the thirsty may have stuff to drink. And that the low may be lifted and high. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.